my co-host, typically, Jarrett Murphy of City Limits, and Dr. Christina Greer. And what they're talking about in the conversation you're going to hear is 10 years since Barack Obama's nomination and what has or hasn't changed, how much of the sort of promise of that moment about, you know, this question of a post-racial America, questions about unity and hope, uh, how much of that was fulfilled, where are we on that now? So that conversation's coming up. First, a minute of Barack Obama from 10 years ago when he accepted the nomination. It is that promise that 45 years ago today brought Americans from every corner of this land to stand together on a mall in Washington before Lincoln's memorial and hear a young preacher from Georgia speak of his dream. The men and women who gathered there could have heard many things. They could have heard words of anger and discord. They could have been told to succumb to the fear and frustrations of so many dreams deferred. But what the people heard instead, people of every creed and color from every walk of life, is that in America, our destiny is inextricably linked. That together, our dreams can be one. We cannot walk alone, the preacher cried. And as we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. America, we cannot turn back. So those were the words. So that was just uh, one quick snippet of Barack Obama, and that is going to help set the stage for this conversation between Jarrett Murphy and Dr. Christina Greer. Enjoy. So those were the words of uh, then-Senator Barack Obama on August 28th, 2008, uh, accepting the Democratic nomination for president. It felt like this incredible moment. Do you remember that I moment? I do. And how did it feel for you? Um, it felt like a promise of a new day. I was cautiously optimistic, only because I study the presidency and I study American politics, and I know the limitations of the role of the presidency. Um, I think that there was a lot of excitement across the country. I don't know if you remember, lots of journalists were throwing around the term post-racial, which I rejected then and I still reject now, um, because I didn't feel like the election of one man would change 400 some odd years of anti-black racism and white supremacy in this country. Um, But I did feel optimistic to a certain extent about the possibility of us living up to the ideals of what he said in his speech about the American dream and sort of moving past and moving forward. And it was a bright, positive vision, unlike some of the things that we're hearing today. One of the things that's curious about the speech, kind of looking through it, is that Obama himself never explicitly makes reference to to that. Um, he refers to King's speech, which was 45 mm-hmm. years earlier to that day, so I guess 55 years earlier to this anniversary. Um, but that's really his only reference, and it's, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't actually name King, um, to race. He didn't talk much about his place in history. I guess he left that to others. Um, but even they tended to talk about this moment, and as you said, moving to a po- post-racial world, um, without really talking about everything that had happened before. Right. Right? It was like, we were, we were going to get past this without talking right. about exactly what we were getting past. 
Which I find really problematic, right? So on the one hand, Obama is, I used to always call him Superman, right? He's from everywhere and nowhere. And so everyone can put all their racialized hopes and dreams on him. So whatever your hangups are and whatever, however you process race, everyone sort of put that in him, right? Um, because he, he had this backstory, this narrative, very well-crafted narrative. And he sidestepped race a lot. And we know that the one or two times where he actually explicitly talked about race as the president, it was a landmine and it was an explosion. And so I'm thinking about, one, the Skip Gates and the Beer Summit, mm -hmm. and two, when he offhandedly mentioned that Trayvon Martin, after Trayvon Martin's, uh, I call it assassination or murder, but legally I think it's, it has to be called a death or something. Um, but he said, you know, if I had a son, Trayvon Martin would have looked like me. Uh, and then the third example was when he filled out the census and he put black and not mixed mm -hmm. and some people had some issues with that and then he sort of I think the fourth case was when they got the dog Bo and it was like Portuguese water terrier or something like that but he said I think you know oh I wanted a mutt like me and so some people had some issues with him using the term mutt so the the four big instances of race did not go well um, and I always really wondered whether or not Obama would be a black president or president who happened to be black and a lot of people obviously said, well, you know, his job isn't to be a president for black people, which is true. He's the president of 320 million people. However, I was always curious to see if black people would would make strides under his leadership. And so as someone who studies mayors, I've seen the tensions that happen in cities with black mayors and black constituents and how they sometimes lose out under a black mayor. And I wondered if the same thing would happen to black Americans across the country under a black president. For the was, same reason. For the right? same they're, reason. They're someone who can't, for granted. Yeah, and someone who can't really talk about race, um, someone who can't be seen as, you know, catering to a black community, someone who has to sort of solidify his base, right? So it's like, you know, I always go back to the example of when Barack Obama gave the graduation speech at Morehouse College, which is a historically black male college. Uh, they graduate roughly 450, 500 black men every year. And he gave one of those pull yourself up by the bootstraps, quasi Bill Cosby pound cake speech, um, you know, don't go out there, you know, sort of being a neglectful dad. And it was really insulting to me and I'm sure to others who sat there in the rain for five hours waiting for him to speak. And it's like, these are people who have actually done four years of college. They are sort of the best and the brightest. Why would you come? You know, and, and, he, and in the speech, he was essentially saying, like, slow down, like, just back off me for a while. I'm doing the best I can. You know, you guys are kind of asking for a lot. Whereas when he would go to white communities or LGBT communities, he would consistently say, like, keep the pressure on me. That's the only way things happen. That's the only way change happens. But when he talked to black communities, it's like, listen, you know, I've got a lot of constraints. Like, you guys just need to hold on. And so that, to me, was really frustrating just because I understand fully that he could not be the president just for black people. Um, but, you know, when we look back on the eight years, I think he made a lot of great strides. I think when you compare him to our current president, I mean, you know, I think half of America would do anything to give their left arm to get him back. But I really have to ask ourselves, you know, a lot of the police brutality happened under his watch. You know, a lot of economic divestment in communities and cities happened under his watch. A lot of neoliberal policies, a la Bill Clinton, happened under his watch. So what exactly, besides hope and, you know, sort of 
the importance of a black president for young people. You know, I look at my students, they grew up under a Barack Obama presidency. Um, but like what substantively happened under his presidency for black people specifically? Because I always tell people, I'm like, I care about two things, cities and black people. So like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing for cities and what are you doing for black people, Barack Obama? Um, and that's, that's I think I, I'm frustrated. I wonder, and I wonder if your study of, of black mayors would have any um, bearing on this, but you refer to Obama's backstory, and, and even early on, some observers talked about his, you know, his particular blackness and mm-hmm. how that affected not just how people perceived him, but his own comfort in talking about the issue and, and even taking on the mantle that he did. Right. Well, I mean, I talk about this really briefly in Black Ethnics, um, where I, I sort of pose the question, you know, when you take someone like Jesse Jackson, who ran 20 and 24 years before Obama, very different time, but, you know, Jesse Jackson has more of a traditional black American backstory, you know, descendants of U.S. chattel slavery, etc. Whereas Barack Obama, you know, I, I sort of pose the question in the book. It's like, well, what if he said, my mom is from Duluth and my dad's from Detroit, meaning like my dad's black American, right? Or even, you know, I always ask my students who say they know nothing about Africa, and I'm like, okay, so if he said my mom's from Nebraska and my dad's from Nigeria, what would you say, right? Because people still have thoughts about mm-hmm. Nigeria. So and when I ask them what they think about Kenya, you know, so I, I, I usually start off with like, well, what do you know about the Congo? And like, oh, my God, child soldiers and war and, you know, violence, right? And it's like, well, what do you know about Nigeria? Scams and violence and et cetera. It's like, well, what do you know about Kenya? Excellence and marathons and safaris, and I really want to go there, and it's really safe. And it's like one of the, you know, crown jewels of Africa in the minds of, say, white Americans who don't know much about the continent. And it's like, but you still have opinions about the continent. So for him to be from a country in a, in a continent of 54 countries, which most Americans just see Africa as like one big country, but he's from a place that already has certain assumptions about positive Africanness, helps him. And then having a white mom, you know, if you look at his early ads, I always show them on livingroomcandidate.org, you know, it's a lot of the grandparents' story. I have Kansas values. What does that mean? Like, you know, it's sort of, I'm middle, like, I'm, I'm quintessential kind of middle America. Okay, no America is more American than America. Like, I feel like New Yorkers are like very American, right? I live in New York City, I'm very American. Um, and I think also, though, that served as a handicap when he got to Congress, because I think he looked at a lot of these old school senators. It's like, oh, they're kind of like my grandpa, right? Like, as long as I'm nice and I'm smart and I work hard and like, they'll come to like me the same way his grandpa's friends came to like him in Hawaii and in Kansas. But it's like, no, these guys don't like you. They will never like you. So stop wasting your time trying to get them to come over to your side because when you were getting inaugurated, they made a pinky swear to make sure that they never worked with you. Like, and I feel like after eight years, he still didn't get it. Right. This, this was the sort of deep-seated primary strategic calculation of the Obama presidency that just kept getting yeah. wrong, right? That eventually yeah. they would Eventually these, these white people will turn and they'll just think that you're like the greatest thing, the same way your grandpa's friends always did. And it's like, no, they never will. Like, do, you feel, do you feel somewhat like his, if, when we look back in 50 years at the, at the presidency, we're, we're assuming that we'll still have a country yeah, just, well, wherever we are on, on Mars or something you know the, the health care act mm-hmm. um, and I suppose some of the um, stuff coming out of the recovery might be viewed as his, his sort of broadest domestic mm-hmm. accomplishments mm-hmm. and what was the sort of racial footprint 
of those. I mean, I suppose you could say, I don't know what the racial breakdown was of the uninsured population before Obamacare, but that must have had some effect on inequities among races. Do you feel like some of those policies had had some bang for their buck? Yeah, I think, you know, when we think about health care, this is something that FDR couldn't do. You know, when we sort of think about Democratic presidents who served more than one term, right? So I'm taking JFK out of the mix. But we, we don't have very many in the 20th century. So we've got FDR, I sort of go FDR, LBJ, Clinton, Obama. FDR couldn't do it. LBJ couldn't do it. Clinton couldn't do it. So he, Obama uses all of his capital in the first year getting health care passed. And also saving the banks, and also you know, industry, you know yeah, ex- yeah, saving right. the country, aka the world, from a financial collapse and falling off of a cliff. And so we have Obama inheriting just a horrific mess from George Bush: two wars, you know, billions of dollars a day. And so I think his philosophy was, you know, let me make these sort of class-based arguments that will ultimately lift black folks in these sweeping policies. Which I think some did, many policies did. But we also know that because of the history of this country and because this country's worked so hard institutionally to exclude black people from so many policies, ranging from healthcare to housing to transportation, you name it, having a blanket policy that sort of lifts all boats helps some, but it doesn't undo really systemic, decades-long atrocities that have been committed towards communities of color in very specific ways. So I I definitely think that healthcare is a a fundamental accomplishment. Like, you know, how we will see it move forward is, is still questionable. Unfortunately, I think Obama left a lot of things on the table thinking that Hillary Clinton would be able to usher in kind of a second wave of making sure these policies were solidified. And we see that that was not to be. But I, I, I do think that in many ways the constraints of Obama being black and having to couch a lot of his policies in a class-based way help blacks in some ways, but not fully. You mentioned a few of the instances where race did come up, and it was almost always sort of thrust at Obama and him reacting mm-hmm. to it. And I think the classic example, maybe the best emblematic example, is the Henry Louis Gates mm-hmm. Fear Summit episode where the professor was arrested at his own home. Obama came out and, I don't believe, accused the officer of being racist, that he was stupid, got a huge backlash, mm-hmm. invites the guy for a beer. Revolt. With Joe Biden, though. With Joe Biden. The working class. Non-alcoholic beer. Uh-huh. Anyway. Um, and then every, everything's everything's okay. In the Rose Garden, but in not in America. Garden, in America, right. <laughs> and so that you could, you could look at that episode one of two ways, right? It was an example that Obama had to stay away from race because whenever he touched it, it blew up in his face. Or it was an example that race was going to be there anyway. He, he should have just dealt with it explicitly, knowing mm-hmm. that people were going to, some people were going to hate him whether he talked about it or not, because just looking at his face said race to some yes. people. How do, you, how do you read it? I mean, what changed systemically in police departments? You know, I mean, I think what we're seeing now is that so many people were just underground with their feelings and emotions about race, racism, and their racist tendencies. And in eight years, they just felt silenced. And so now we have a president who's like, you don't have to be silenced. Like, you don't have to, you know, be monitored by the PC police. 
If you don't like Negroes and Mexicans and Muslims, say it. Say it loud and proud. And I think a lot of people are like, whew, finally. Like, I had eight years where I felt like I had to, like, tiptoe around and pretend that I'm not who I am. And we're seeing this excavation of what this country has always been. And so that also, you know, Obama constantly would say and still says, like, this is not who we are as a nation. I'm like, where have you been? This is exactly who we've been as a nation. You do realize that the country was founded on free labor, chattel slavery by, like, Africans. Like, are you kidding? You know, it's like mass genocide by Native Americans. This is the foundation of America. We don't like to talk about it, and it's uncomfortable. But, you know, when we think about, like, LBJ is my favorite president. When we think about the strides of, you know, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the Immigration Act, the Housing Act, these things were 50 years ago. Just 50 years ago. 50 and change. Right? So, Black folks have only been voting with the quote-unquote full protection of the law for five decades, not even. You know, when I tell Ru people that Ruby Bridges, who integrated, you know, first black girl integrated schools in, in New Orleans, she's 63. My dad integrated his high school in Miami, Florida. Like, he just had his 50th reunion. He's 70 years old. So, I mean, these are people who are still living and walking among us who went through an era where it was, you know, whites only and colored as far as facilities and, you know, having to show your passes at the beach, etc. So to say nothing of when the federal policies change and how states, you know, slowly but surely change when they felt like it. But we still have a lot of people, not just black people who were victims of segregation and not just in the South, right? Because as Malcolm X says, anything south of the Canadian border is the U.S. South. But we also still have the perpetrators. So the people who, you know, were discriminatory are still among us, and the people who were discriminated against are still among us. So this kind of idea that one man and two elections erases 400 years of what a country is, to me, is absolutely ridiculous. And the Democrats did like an eight-year victory lap, like, we're not racist. It's like, uh, <laughs> good for you guys. But actually, like, there, there are a lot of things that are still happening. And they were even happening then. I mean, I think one of the things that was occurring as Obama's presidency wore on was the erosion of voting rights mm -hmm. protections by courts mm -hmm. and by states with ID things. And, and you, state houses that, being that, taken over by Republicans. Was that part of a longer s historical swell, or was that a reaction to the Obama presidency, do you think? I think it's both. I think Republicans have been more organized and more forward-thinking than Democrats for a long time. Um, I think that they they use their money in more effective ways. I think that they targeted state houses well before we were even thinking about them in DA's races and sort of more statewide elections. You know, the fact that they have two-thirds of governorships, two-thirds of state houses, even in these quote-unquote blue states. And I do think that some of it is a reaction to, you know, as a political scientist, we always say that Americans prefer divided government. So as we have this strong Democratic president, we saw, you know, obviously a very strong Republican Congress come on in in 2010. But across states, we saw Republican governors rising up. We saw Republican state houses. You know, New York is, I, I always say all states are red states. It's do you have enough blue cities in your red state to flip it blue every four years? But, you know, I always say it's like there are parts of New York I wouldn't go to at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> there are parts of Staten Island I wouldn't go to at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That's part of the five boroughs. So the idea that we have this blue state, red state, or like the northern city, the northern states are the good states and the southern states are the bad states, that's, I think, a 
unfortunate falsehood that we continue to perpetrate. It's interesting you talked about kind of the latent feelings of racism or they were, they were a bit suppressed during the Obama administration coming out in the Trump election and, and since mm-hmm. then. And I wonder if it was a reaction to Obama or to some of the things that were happening kind of outside of his control. I mean, what's interesting about his second term is that that's when we had uh, Ferguson, the, the arrival of the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. um, Eric Garner, and, and you know, a, a real much more uh, candid conversation, at least in some spheres about, uh, spheres about racism than certainly Obama was inaugurating. Um, it's interesting that even as he was trying not to talk about race, that it was sort of being talked about in some places. Right. But I think, you know, we also have to dissect, there are sort of two conversations happening. One is about race and one is about racism. And so, and when you think about, say, the Black Lives Matter movement was started in response to the killing of Trayvon Martin and the acquittal of George Zimmerman, right? And so the tactics that a lot of younger black people felt, you know, this frustration where it's like, I cannot sit by. Like, I understand older, there were a lot of older black people who just felt like the movement was too radical and, you know, the politics of respectability, this is not how we make advancements. It's like, well, Martin Luther King was considered, you know, domestic terrorist until he was assassinated, and now everyone likes to think of him as a god, right? You know, uh, Nelson Mandela, for example, is also considered a domestic terrorist, <laughs> you know, until they put him in prison for 27 years. So this kind of disnification of the civil rights movement, where it's like, it's just about, like, Rosa Parks sitting on a bus. I was like, no, she was a rape investigator and went into the Deep South and was kind of a badass, right? Like, Martin Luther King, when you read the letter from a Birmingham jail, and especially his later his later read or his later writings, I mean, he's pretty like maybe we, maybe this peaceful protest stuff is is working out so well. Like we might need to think about some other options. You know, it's fascinating to see how he and Malcolm X sort of cross paths at, at a certain point. And so Ferguson and Trayvon Martin, aka, and also the acquittal of uh, George Zimmerman and Tamir Rice and Rakia Boyd. I mean, unfortunately, the names keep going on and on. I think that there was a level of impatience that especially younger black people were feeling, where it's just like, okay, so if electoral politics is not going to get us what we want, we need to go back to old school protest politics. I always say electoral politics and protest politics go hand in hand because electoral politics individuals respond to protest politics. Um, And I do think that we need people in office. Like, we need to be in the game, right? It can't just be protest politics. And it can't just be relying on people that we've elected every four years or two years to to give us what we need. Um, Obama's silence on a lot of those issues, I think, really frustrated people and I think we saw that frustration play out with the lack of participation in the 2016 elections. The immigration issue is obviously much more at the fore than the race. Um, but I'm curious about, especially given your research on, on black ethnics, how does racial politics intersect with that issue? We're at a really crucial moment. You know, black undocumented are 10% of the undocumented population, but 20% of the deportations. And so, for me, when I look at black undocumented, they're in a especially tenuous position in cities, especially because of practices like stop and frisk. It's not called stop and frisk across the country, but those practices where we know that black communities are hyper-surveilled by the state, 
by the police state. And so what could be a regular little stop and frisk could all of a sudden turn into an ICE investigation. Um, so Baji, the Black Alliance for uh, Just Immigration, um, does a lot of this research and a lot of this work. What I'm hoping is that black communities and Latinx communities will come together and not sort of see this as a competing issue. Because a lot of local politicians strategically like to pit black communities against Latinx communities and sort of sort of tell black communities, well, you know, it's the immigrants who are stealing your jobs. That's why you don't have X, Y, and Z. And it's like, that's not the case, right? And I, I think a, a lot of communities aren't buying that. Um, but it does work certain times. And so I think a lot of grassroots organizations are trying to get black Americans to understand like this immigration issue is an issue that actually does affect you personally. You may not be undocumented, but when you start taking away civil liberties for anyone who is on the soil, like you, you should know what that feels like, you know, in your DNA, you should know what that feels like and you should prevent that from happening to anyone. I think, unfortunately, so many communities are in just such a crucial state where, you know, they're living kind of day to day. And so to kind of think about these big picture issues for communities that aren't directly tied to them, at least in their minds, is a hard sell. Um, but it is possible. And I think that there are a lot of strides that are being made by grassroots organizations to say, you know, we cannot ever condone any politician or any policy that takes children away from families or that just can go into your job and, and do a raid and take people away from their communities. Because you know what it feels like to have someone removed from your community for seemingly no reason. So that's kind of where we are. Um, I also think it's really fascinating because as someone who does polling and looks at polling, we very rarely ever poll Asian Americans because of the, the diffuse nature of geographic locale, but also the diversity within the Asian American community and the generational diversity. So you have Asian Americans who have been here for 12 generations. You have Asian Americans who got here yesterday and everything in between. Um, but they're the fastest growing undocumented population as well. So what does that look like for larger coalition building amongst Black, Latinx, and Asian communities to sort of try and combat this wave that we're seeing that's a very, um, I call it a white supremacist agenda from this presidency because at a certain point in time, I mean, we know this president believes in sort of his good German genes. He said that several times. And at a certain point in time, you can't make more white people, right? Like. Over time, this country has allowed other people to become white. So like the Germans, the Jews, the Irish, the Italians, who were not initially considered white, but slowly but surely they're allowed to because we need more white people. But at a certain point in time, you can't create more white people, so you have to start expelling people of color, which is what we're seeing. So that was a conversation between Jarrett Murphy, usual co-host of this program, Max and Murphy here on WBAI Radio, and Dr. Christina Greer of Fordham University. They're talking about 10 years since Barack Obama was nominated to be president by the Democratic Party. 
talking about race, politics, bringing obviously some of those themes through today and the Trump presidency. Uh, so that was Jarrett Murphy and Christina Greer. We're hoping to have uh, Dr. Greer join us on at another point because she also has a lot to say about local and state politics. And that is, of course, what we're all about here on Max and Murphy. And we're going to say goodbye for this week and join you again next week when, as I said earlier, we're going to have a return to some of our candidates joining us next week. Our show will feature two state Senate candidates, State Senator Jose Peralta and challenger Jessica Ramos. That is a state Senate race happening in Queens that has, like others we've discussed, many themes and issues involved that are citywide, statewide issues. So be sure to tune in next week, Wednesday, 5 p.m. for Max and Murphy here on WBAI. And thank you for listening.